Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, Mary Ann Carroll, one of the six original Highwaymen artists and the only woman in the group, has died. We weren't really a group, per se. We were all independent bodies with our own self and same desires and uh, tasks. It's like a bunch of people in Orange Grove picking fruit, but everybody picking his own fruit. We'll discuss the autobiography of George Ballantyne, a 19th century Englishman in Florida. We're looking at a first edition that was published in 1853. It's entitled Autobiography of an English Soldier in the United States Army. And we'll talk about the Veterans Legacy Project, remembering the Second Seminole War. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Highwaymen Artists are a group of African-American painters who specialize in beautiful Florida landscapes. These artists were inspired by white artist Beanie Backus of Fort Pierce, but developed their own unique style of painting very quickly in large quantities using inexpensive materials. With the exception of Highwayman Alfred Hare, who studied with Backus, the Highwaymen Artists were mostly self-taught. The original group of Highwaymen Artists emerged in the mid-1950s in the Fort Pierce area. Their work was not sold in galleries, but from cars driven from one end of Florida to the other. Al Black is one of the original Highwayman artists, but that's not how he started with the group. Yes, sir, I was the salesman for the whole group. I uh, would load all the paintings up in the car and take off in the mornings. And if they give me 50 paintings, I would sell 50 paintings. Al Black explains the secret of his success as he took the Highwayman paintings from Fort Pierce down to the Keys and up to Alabama and many places in between. Well, I was always a good talker, and I would uh, go around and I would go to the real estate offices, doctor's offices, and uh, attorneys, and uh, motels, and different offices, and I would go in and say, my name is Al Black, say I'm uh, representing Ahare, uh, Newton, uh, whoever I was selling for at that time. And I said, I would like to know would you all be interested in some paintings if it wouldn't take up too much of you all's time. And most of the time, uh, they would let me come in and sell some. While Black was transporting Highwayman paintings around the state to sell, they would sometimes get damaged. Often he would load the paintings into his car while they were still wet. That was how Al Black started painting. I would fix the paintings uh, when I mess them up on the road because we had to sell them uh, real fast because in that time we were selling them real low. 
and we had to keep on painting. And while they would be painting, I would be out on the road. And I learned how to paint by fixing the, all the different artists' paintings when I mess one up. After years of successfully selling the work of other highwaymen artists, Al Black decided he could create Florida landscapes himself. After I fixed them for so many years, I was a salesman back in the 60s up until the 70s. And after I fixed so many, I could start painting myself. Al Black's story is unique among the more than two dozen highwaymen artists. He could not sell his work for more than a decade. Well, I was in uh, the prison system for 12 years, but I still painted. They allowed me to paint right there in prison. And ain't too many people that ever was able to paint in prison. But by me being one of the highwaymen, and I was famous and everything, they went on and let me paint it. I sold most of them already, but everything I paint it sells anyway. So I don't hardly have any more of those prisoner paintings, but the ones was uh, signed with a block A. Uh, those paintings sell for more because they was, it won't be any more of that because they all prisoner paintings. The highwaymen artists are known for their idyllic depictions of the natural Florida prior to development and urban sprawl. Their paintings focus on marshlands, river scenes, beaches, sunrises and sunsets, palm trees, brightly colored poinciana trees, Spanish moss hanging from cypress trees, and Florida's indigenous wildlife. Al Black says that their paintings preserve Florida history. That's right, because of you, the, the way Florida used to look, it don't look that way anymore. So we all captured it on canvas. The original group of highwaymen artists followed the examples of Alfred Hare, who studied with Beanie Backus, and Harold Newton. Mary Ann Carroll is a pastor from Fort Pierce and an original highwayman artist. Her mentor was Harold Newton. I saw his car with a fiery flame painted on the side, and it, I've always been intrigued by things that was different, and that was different. And so one day I saw him sitting on 20th 20, 20 Street talking to somebody, and I saw it, and I stopped him and asked him questions about the car, and he let me know he painted it. So then it was a painting laying in the back seat, and I th always thought this stuff was done with a camera. I didn't ever think it would be done by people. Well, see, when I was small, I'd look at the catalogs and stuff, and I guess that's why I thought that way. I used to like look at Norman Rockwell's work, but it never dawned on me that it could be done that way. When I saw Harold, then he told me he did it. I saw him um, painting on a tree, and I stopped, drove in the yard, and I stopped, and he, uh, I didn't enter interrupt him. I just, he knew me from seeing me over there on 20th Street. So what, he didn't have to ask me who I was when I was looking, but I just uh, watched him paint. So when he got through, I asked him, would he show me, teach me? So and he said, yes. Yeah. So I went over there one day and he tacked me up an 18 by 24 board. And it was a river scene. And I'll never forget, he co-phased two palms on it because I didn't know how to paint no trees. He mixed the colors for me and that's how I went. It was more or less like pastel colors. And so I just went on wild myself painting what I, colors I like. I couldn't ever get them all like I wanted them a lot of time, but other people seemed to like them, so I didn't have a problem with that, you know. So but he was, uh, he inspired me through the works that he'd done. And he's the first one that I have known that was an actual highwayman. But we never looked at it like that, but we accepted the name because it's the way you made your living. 
they really didn't feel like we was gathering material. So we had to do what we had to do. I guess you could call it a, a, a mobile gallery. <laughs> and so this is the way it had started, and it went on from there to where it is now. Marianne Carroll is the only female highwayman artist. She says that the artists never thought of themselves as any kind of organized group. The name Highwayman was assigned to the painters by art dealer Jim Fitch in 1995 in an article he wrote for the magazine Antiques and Art Around Florida. We weren't really a group per se. We were all independent bodies with our own self, uh, self and same desires and uh, tasks. They're like a bunch of people in Orange Grove picking fruit, but everybody picking his own fruit. You know, you need to go and look to get none of mine that I pick, pick your own fruit. So we basically was associated by our, uh, by our gift. And they really, I didn't really have a problem with the guys. They weren't, they didn't go out the way to let me know I was, they was going to help me or nothing like that. So I just looked at it as a woman surviving in a man's world and I knew I had do what I had to do because I had responsibility down the line. I had responsibility to seven children, raise single parent. And this is why I can't see people not falling out because they have to raise one or two kids. And I mean, it's just, I did it and it was nothing. I know it was the grace of God, but I thank God because Jim Crow days and all that stuff. But I notice in life that there are people that take you for who you are and for not what somebody else wants you to be. And there were many whites that was there for us. And there were many that looked like they wanted to say, well, get out of here. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's just a thing where it worked out fine in our behalf and there were many nice people as well as unnice. And that go on every, every side of the world, every side of the race, creed and color. We all have some hangups and problems. And, uh, but me, I, they used to tell me that, uh, so how do you be feel about called a highway woman, highwayman? I said, it doesn't really bother me, you know, because when I, a little common judgment, when I looked, you know, when Adam and Eve, Eve came from man's side, and so she was called woman. And I noticed on man and men, the last three letters spells the same. So therefore it doesn't bother me, and it didn't bother me really. And I never thought of nothing like that as me being a woman and they being a man. I just thought of us as being artists to, to make a living for ourselves. In addition to being a painter, Marianne Carroll expresses herself in other creative ways as a poet and musician. It's all just a part of me. Uh, like you might get tired of wearing black shoes and put on some brown ones or something like that. I just look at it as a mind soother. And I uh, travel five states singing gospel made two records and have some now sitting back, been had them for about 10 years. I want to put them out on a CD now. And I pastor the church, small congregation of people. Uh, and I thank God that we lost one here a few weeks ago that was very dedicated. And I, uh, I even painted houses and did a little plumbing. I mean, all this, I raised seven kids, as I said, single parent, and I always felt and an honest dollar was more than any dollar in the world in my hands, an honest dollar. Not one that I got out and cheated somebody or stole or something like that, or body bargaining. <laughs> so 
So I'm, I'm just grateful to God that he had those gifts for me. Like the other highwayman artists, Mary Ann Carroll is preserving a part of Florida that is quickly disappearing to development and urban sprawl. You look back, even now, it's still a little bit, but from when I was coming up, the places that we was raised, they're not there now. And the schools that we used to attend, basically almost gone. And uh, it's just the scenery that used to be there is not there now. And we either have to memorize it from the spot it was in, or some of it is still there. We can, you know, like Savannah's, they're still there. They haven't been bothered too much. And uh, the inlet, St. Louis Inlet, is still there. It haven't really been bothered, the water site. But I guess if it hadn't been for water management, it would have been tampered with also. And a lot of the backwoods, country scenes and things are gone. They're not there now. And it have taken a whole lot of nature from, from our view. Roy McClendon is also one of the handful of highwaymen artists who originated the movement in the Fort Pierce area in the mid-1950s. Soon after Jim Fitch coined the name Highwaymen Artists, books soon followed. In 2001, Gary Monroe wrote the book The Highwaymen, Florida's African-American Landscape Painters, and in 2005, Bob Beattie wrote Florida's Highwaymen, Legendary Landscapes. In 2004, 26 artists called The Highwaymen were inducted into the Florida Artists Hall of Fame. McClendon says he was surprised to discover how many Highwaymen artists there were. Well, Gary Monroe wrote this book, you know, well, uh, Jim Fitch over in all the Seaburn, he named us the Highwaymen, so. And then even in the book about the Highwaymen, Gary Monroe, so. Then we all was inducted into the Hall of Fame. See, what happened is, um, a lot of, a lot of people in the book, I didn't even know. But they had the name in the book, so. They put everybody in the book in the Hall of Fame, so. That's what happened there. Because a lot of my, I never heard tell them, tell them the highwaymen come out and then, then, some, then a lot of people want to get on the wagon because the price went up, you know. Oh yeah, because pictures like one of these stuff for $35, was in for 35 and 4500 for it, the same painting, you know, so now everybody want to be a highwayman. <laughs> As McClendon points out, the average price for a highwayman painting in the 1950s and 60s was $35, and today it's not unusual for them to sell for $3,500. More importantly, the story of the highwayman artists is one of creative people making economic opportunities for themselves in a difficult era of racial segregation in Florida. Highwayman artist Mary Ann Carroll died on December 2nd. In 2011, Carroll presented one of her paintings to First Lady Michelle Obama. On Saturday, December 21st, original Highwayman artist R.L. Lewis will be giving a demonstration at the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Our Florida Frontiers television episode on the Highwayman artists, including Mary Ann Carroll, is online at myfloridahistory.org. Oh, 
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, today we're talking about an Englishman in Florida in the mid-19th century who wrote about his time here. Yeah, that's right. We're talking specifically about a gentleman named George Ballantyne. Uh, he came to the United States in uh, 1845. Uh, he was about 20 years old. He left England, uh, as he writes in his book, essentially looking for work, like many young men uh, at that time period, and uh, sought that work in America. Uh, so he was had spent time in the Royal Navy. He'd actually spent some time off the coast of West Africa. So he, he was accustomed at least to military life. But he came to America trying to find something different. In fact, uh, when he landed in New York, it was actually one of the first nights he signed on uh, to be a part of a crew of a whaling ship. Uh, but then he had a few drinks with one of the guys who was actually on the ship and learned that it was not the best situation. Uh, so the very next day, he joined the American Army and uh, was garrisoned actually at Governor's Island, right, in, in New York Harbor for a series of weeks where they started drilling and, and kind of learning the uh, the basics of military life. Uh, shortly after that point, he was sent to Rhode Island. And within a few weeks, he got his first assignment, and that was Florida. Now, here we have someone coming uh, not only new to, to Florida, but new to the United States. Uh, he'd only been here for a few months by the time he uh, made his way to Florida and uh, was first stationed at Fort Pickens uh, on Florida's uh, west coast in Pensacola. And I want to read here quickly. This is just a, a brief description of his first sighting of Pensacola. He says here, quote, After a prosperous voyage of 16 days, the low sandy coast of Florida became distinctly visible. The first appearance of land on approaching Pensacola is very singular. Long, bright lines of silvery white crowned with a mass of dark green vegetation stretch far athwart the blue horizon, suggesting the idea of a strong surf everywhere rolling in upon the shore. So he spent a little bit of time in St. Augustine, uh, but most of the rest of his service was actually spent in Tampa. Well, you have here a first edition copy of George Ballantyne's autobiography. What else does he say about Florida? Yeah, that's right. We're looking at a first edition that was published in 1853. It's entitled Autobiography of an English Soldier in the United States Army. Uh, but it goes on to describe life essentially in camp uh, in Florida shortly after the end of the Second Seminole War, which had officially ended in 1842. So George is here in, in spent most of 1846 uh, in Florida. So we're really kind of just at the end of uh, major hostilities, one of the longest and costliest Indian wars, at least in, in U.S. history. Uh, so the United States is keeping a large contingent of U.S. soldiers in Florida, and he becomes part of that group. So he talks a little bit about camp life and kind of the monotony of every day essentially being the same. They, they encountered uh, very little resistance. He wasn't involved in any battles in Florida. Uh, but some of his, uh, I guess we'll call them misadventures, are, are really quite interesting. He spends a lot of time talking about the proliferation of whiskey, <laughs> a lot of the soldiers who, who delve into homemade brew and uh, get into a little bit of trouble. But he also talks about some of the wildlife. And uh, to supplement their diet, they actually purchased a seine net from one of the local fishermen in, in Pensacola, uh, and they would pull this net along the shore for fish. They've, they essentially ate mullet most of the year, and, uh, and he really describes it in, in great detail and enjoyed it uh, quite a bit. But one thing he didn't enjoy were the sharks in Pensacola Bay. And he has one interesting passage I'll read here. They actually caught a shark, and he goes on to describe what happened after that. He says here, quote, On the beach alongside the wharf, he was dispatched with bayonets and cutlasses. When measured, it was found to be 11 feet long. Its frightfully capacious jaws, full of jagged, sawed-like teeth, were taken out of the head and preserved by the ordnance sergeant. When fully extended, the jaws would easily admit a stout man's shoulders to pass along them. 
<laughs> unquote. So kind of interesting. And, and he talks a little bit about soldiers daring each other to swim in the bay. Um, but soon after he arrived in Pensacola, he was sent a little bit further south to Tampa Bay. And in Tampa Bay, he has uh, kind of a better experience. He enjoys his time there because the fort at that time was right in the middle of what would become downtown Tampa uh, in present day. So it was really a part of the community and they had a little more freedom to kind of move about the community, spend more time exploring, hunting and fishing. Uh, And he describes Tampa Bay as, as this, quote, in front of the barracks, there stood a noble grove of live oak trees, which afforded a delicious shade from the scorching heat of the sun and gave an air of a quiet and expression of sylvan beauty to the scene. The long gray beard of weird-like Spanish moss that droops in huge masses from the rough, brawny arms of these giants of the primeval forest gives them a venerable and druidical appearance, which is exceedingly picturesque, unquote. And he, he really did enjoy. He spent most of 1846 uh, stationed in Tampa Bay. And at one point, he actually met one of the uh, a group of, of Seminole Indians who came to the fort to trade goods. So if you can imagine, this is only a few years after the end of hostilities. And he talks about a party of about 20 or 30 of what he uh, terms as warriors coming into fort, and they were trading deerskin uh, in exchange for, among other things, uh, alcohol, whiskey, but also metal goods, tools, muskets, powder, that sort of thing. And he, he describes in his autobiography that he, like a lot of soldiers during this time period stationed in Florida, he kind of feels bad for the Seminoles. He feels like this is an area that, um, that they enjoy living in. Uh, and he, like many of the other soldiers, kind of wanted to just leave them alone. And leave them alone he did, because shortly after this, he was sent to Mexico, uh, where he spent the rest of his army life fighting in the Mexican War. Now, are there many detailed accounts like this by 19th century soldiers in Florida? There really aren't that many, at least not that many that were published in 1853. So this is an early publication. Like I said, the majority of his autobiography deals with his time in Mexico. He fought in several battles. He was involved in a large part, actually, of that conflict. And this was one of the first, according to the editor's notes, one of the first descriptions from a regular soldier. A lot of the biographies that were coming out were written by officers and by commanding generals and and folks like that. So this is one of the first, or earliest, rather, of these firsthand accounts kind of on the ground of what it was like for a regular soldier in, in Florida and later in Mexico. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. This is Florida Frontiers. The Veterans Legacy Project works to help us remember those who gave their lives in battle, including during the Second Seminole War. Holly Baker is manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science and public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society. The National Cemetery Administration launched the Veterans Legacy Program, the VLP, in 2016 with a vision to memorialize veteran service to the nation by telling their stories. In 2017, the National Cemetery Administration selected the University of Central Florida in Orlando as one of three schools awarded contracts as VLP partners. I talked to Dr. Scott French, Associate Professor and Director of Public History with the UCF History Department, about their most recent project, centering on memorializing veterans of the Second Seminole War buried at St. Augustine National Cemetery in Florida. The Veterans Legacy Program is interested in the Seminole War because of St. Augustine National Cemetery. The Dade Battle Monuments, the Command Monuments, the Pyramids are memorials to those who fought and died in the Second Seminole War, but specifically to Dade and his command. As we approached 
the study of St. Augustine National Cemetery, we really wanted to record the history of all the battles represented there. And the Seminole War is, of course, one of the most prominent. And we took it upon ourselves to do some original research. We really wanted to create a database that gave you a portrait of those who fought and died in the Seminole War. And we're using enlistment records and other records that can tell us who those men were and using new technology to create interactive displays and let users, let the public explore the stories behind the war. The Second Seminole War was a conflict between the Seminoles in Florida and the United States that took place from 1835 to 1842. At that time, the U.S. government was forcibly removing native tribes from Florida in order to expand the boundaries of white American settlement. Hundreds of Seminole chiefs and warriors resisted their removal and fought back. A conflict on December 28, 1835, known as Dade's Battle, brought the United States into the Second Seminole War, when eight officers and 100 men from the U.S. Army, under the command of Brevet Major Francis Langhorne Dade, were attacked by Seminoles led by Chief McAnope. The Seminoles lost three men out of nearly 200 that day, while only two U.S. soldiers out of 108 men survived the battle. The Veterans Legacy Program team at the University of Central Florida is creating digital projects to tell the story of the men involved in Dade's battle and other major conflicts of the Second Seminole War. So some of the projects students have been working on include battle-by-battle battle summaries so that you can follow the war around the state. And for each battle, you can see what the importance was, a little summary of the battle, why is it significant. You can look at the casualty rates um, and you can read biographies associated with the battle, and you can also access primary sources. In St. Augustine National Cemetery, there's a headstone that reads simply, Six Unknown Indians. Through the efforts of the Veterans Legacy Program, these men will no longer be forgotten. The VLP-UCF team hopes to tell their stories and to reveal the voices of all the men who fought in the Second Seminole War. Several students have taken it upon themselves to look at the war from the perspective of the Seminoles. And what they've done is found interviews that were conducted with Seminole leaders like Alligator. There's a first-person account of Dade's battle given by Alligator, one of the leaders. And uh, these students help bring that into the project. We also have the reminiscences of Louis Pacheco, who was an African-American interpreter guide, enslaved African-American interpreter guide. And his story is now going to be accessible, much more accessible than it's ever been before through this project. As part of their research into the Second Seminole Wars, University of Central Florida students and faculty with the Veterans Legacy Program started a project called VLpedia. This website will eventually include Wikipedia-style entries with information about the Seminole Wars. VLpedia will allow users to look at the Second Seminole War from both perspectives. For each battle, all the information you would need would be at your fingertips. And that hasn't been done for the Seminole War. Um, there have been some great efforts. There's the Seminole War Heritage Trail Guide, which is terrific. Um, this would be an online project. That's what we're bringing to it, that you can explore the history of the war, the sites associated with the war, learn more about some of the uh, individuals who fought. And we're really trying to bring the Seminole perspective into this as well. To the extent that we have records of the uh, Seminole leaders, we're bringing their voices into this. We really want this to be representative of all of the groups that were involved. 
The Veterans Legacy Program team at the University of Central Florida honors veterans and brings their stories alive through a range of instructional materials and interactive digital history tools. For more information about their projects, go to vlp.cah.ucf.edu. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.